You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Today's scripture reading is from Romans 8. Read, follow along with me. Verses 18 through 30. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who were called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, good morning. You may be seated. Thanks, Andy, for reading that text. We have family worship this morning. Uh, it's also a great reminder for me just to communicate to you, kids, you're not a burden, you're a blessing. However, if you do get restless, because I'm 41 and I still get restless, um, we do pu- uh, pipe in uh, the sermon in the Restless Kids Room just right across the hallway. So if that serves you, um, you can go right over there. We also have kids' sermon notes, and I had Logan bring in the totes as well. So if you came in looking for a tote, they should be out there right now in the hallway at the table. All right, today we conclude our sermon series that is entitled The Grace of Salvation. That account, but for the last six weeks, uh, we've been looking at God's Word to see the depth of the work of God to save. So again, putting a spotlight on the gospel, which is never a bad thing. Several weeks back, I said that salvation is like looking at a diamond. I've heard this analogy many times. I'm going to use it one more time. Uh, when you look at a diamond, you kind of slightly rotate it. You get a different image or different view of something that is beautiful, something that's complex even. And you continue to see just how awesome this diamond is. Just one more turn. It's like, whoa, it's another, just another angle. I've also said that the theological doctrines of this sermon series, these doctrines of grace, are like a golden chain. Now, where does that idea come from? It actually comes from... Um, this guy named William Perkins from uh, the 16th century England, and he wrote this book called The Golden Chain. 
And what I've been trying to do is walk down old paths and bring you along with me down some old paths. Because there's something that I've realized in my life. If I'm going to communicate something new to you and revelatory for the first time ever, then you probably need to disregard it. <laughs> it's better to go back to the old paths, the truths that are tested over time. And that's what I've done in this, been trying to do in this sermon series, take you along to these old paths. There's nothing new in our theology, to be quite frank. So today is the last link of the chain where I want to attempt to show you the beauty of glorification. Like, like We'll talk about what that means here in a moment, but that's kind of where we're at. All these links are connected, and then we're kind of coming to the end. Uh, just so you know, next week is Palm Sunday, and then Easter, obviously, following that. After Easter, we'll get into the book of Hebrews. And just a heads up, regarding the book of Hebrews, um, we'll go slow. We're like, we're like in a pack of suitcase. We're putting the clothes in. We're ta- putting the toiletries in, and we're going to just park out, hang out in the book of Hebrews for an extended period of time. We'll take some breaks, of course, along the way. But if you remember our time through, say, Ephesians or the Sermon on the Mount, we just kind of went slowly, verse by verse, just kind of unturning every stone so, as for today, we're in Romans 8. Um, one note before I pray and get into it. Uh, what Andy read uh, is a lot. There's a lot in there. There's a lot I'm not going to touch. I'm not even going to touch your favorite verse in that passage. But it says a lot about glory. A lot about glorification. And so that's what I'll be focusing on today from Romans 8. So I want to pray, ask for God's help, and then uh, ask that the Lord meet us in his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you. I must confess my need for you this morning. Um, Lord, help me to be faithful to what you've already said. Help me to be faithful to these beautiful truths that come from your word. And I pray for my friends in front of me this morning, that you would meet them where they're at, that you'd speak to their minds and their hearts and their lives through the Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first question of the shorter Westminster Catechism is this. What is the chief end of man? Someone already knows. In other words, at the end of the day, why do you exist? It's an existential question, obviously. Why do you exist? If you could only give one answer, what would you say? Growing up, I was told that I existed to do good works, to do good deeds, to good things, right? I was just hammered in the doctrine that was given to me from my parents. That's why I existed. A problem with this approach is that the definition of good constantly changed. <laughs> do you exist to love God and others? Man, that's not a bad answer, right? Get that right from Scripture. It's a bib- there's biblical warrant, but we need to be careful not to take the acts of love to be good works, right? Do you exist for personal enjoyment? It seems that many, if not most, Americans would provide an answer highlighting radical individualism as the reason to why they exist. I exist for a little more of me and my desires and my pursuits my identity. Do you exist for the government? Right? There's certainly folks throughout history who would say, I exist for government. 
Do you exist for your spouse, right? Do you exist to be a, a mother or a father? If I polled 1,000 people with this question, you would receive, I, th- I think, many different answers, right? Now, here is how the, sh- the shorter Westminster Catechism answers the question. I put it up on the screen for you. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That answer isn't even close to the answers that I previously gained of, of, of all the options. I really like this answer as to why you and I exist. In light of the, the rise and triumph of the modern self, we desperately need to ground the reason for our existence in God. In uh, 1646-47, theologians and laymen from England and Scotland gathered to create a tool to introduce children to the Christian faith. And out of 107 questions that were written down in the shorter Westminster Catechism, this is the first question. Why? In a sense, the first question of the Catechism is man-centered, right? Why do you exist, right? What is the end goal of your life? However, the answer is wholly God-centered. You exist, Christian, to glorify God. You exist to enjoy God. That's pretty amazing to me. If it is true that you were born into this world to glorify God, then the implications on your life, I think, are pretty massive. If you can settle this philosophical and theological debate right here and now, then the consequences are enormous because if the primary goal of your life is to glorify God, then how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you use your talents, all of that is impacted. The end goal informs the means, right? How you talk to your friends and family in in neighbors matter. If you exist to glorify God, how you understand and walk through trials and suffering looks different from those who exist to glorify something else, perhaps themselves. If you exist to glorify God, then the attitude of your heart and actions take on a God-word trajectory. Further, if the goal of your life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, then that also informs why God created man at all. The word glory is used all the time in the, in the church, right? Uh, for the glory of God, right? Right at the very beginning of Redemption Hill Church, uh, Shelby uh, made these beautiful banners and we you know, paid for them. And for the glory of God, that's one of the first things that we said right out of the gate. Why we exist. I think we rightly use the word glory all the time. You hear me say from the pulpit, we sing about the glory of God. The term comes up in settings like community groups. But what does the glory of God mean? If the chief end of your life is to glorify God, then what are we talking about? What is glory? What is glorification? I'm going to answer that first question. Then we're going to see from Romans 8 what the doctrine of glorification actually has to do with you. Now, here's a solid definition of glory. God's glory is the manifestation 
of the perfection of all of his attributes. The doctrine of the glory of God, says Michael Hyken, emphasizes his greatness and transcendence, his splendor and holiness. God is said in Scripture to be clothed with glory and majesty. Creation manifests the glory of its creator. Above all, the glory of God is present in the life of the Lord Jesus. And through the Holy Spirit of glory, God's glory fills the church. I mean, that last part, God's glory fills this church. So the glory of God is manifested by God's love, goodness, patience, etc. These attributes, these characteristics. God's glory is also aesthetic. Some people disagree with me on this point. Like God's glory is just merely the attributes, but we can't really see it. I absolutely disagree. There is a beauty and majesty that can display the glory of God. For example, the beauty in creation testifies to the glory of God. Psalm 19, for the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. What's going on when we proclaim Psalm 19, verse 1 and 2? There's something aesthetic that we're seeing. From Psalm 19, we know that we can look up at the stars at night and see God's glory while at the same time enjoying the display of God's glory. Last night, I got home a little late and uh, kind of took care of some things for, for today. And I was walking back to the car. I looked up and there wasn't a cloud in the sky at the time. And it was just amazing. There's no light pollution. And I looked up and I'm like, oh my goodness, God created all of this for me to enjoy. Is that not glorious? Remember the first time I uh, saw the ocean? I was an adult. When you live in the Midwest, you don't travel much. You don't, you know. So I finally got to the ocean one time. And I ran into it. My mouth was open, so I didn't mentally prepare myself for the salt water. But, like, you, you just look in there, and you look at the ocean, and you're just like, this is amazing. <laughs> As far as the eye can see, is just this massive body of water. I'm used to the Mississippi. It's like cliff, cliff. You know, you can see the other side. Not with the ocean. It was glorious, except for the salt in the mouth, right? God himself is glorious, and God has chosen to reveal his glory. The primary revelation of God's glory is through the Son, Jesus Christ. I should not have been surprised, but I paused when I read um, from a book on glorification that in the Bible, God's glory is spoken about in every book but three. 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. So out of 63 books of 66 books, glory is spoken, the glory of God is spoken about in some way. From Genesis to Revelation. Allow me to quickly trace the glory of God between Genesis and Revelation, and eventually we're going to use Romans 8 as kind of our anchor. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see the glory of God in creation, specifically in the creation of man and woman. God created man and woman in his perfect image and likeness. That's you, Christian. That's all people, image and likeness. God's glory was seen in and through our first parents. But then in Genesis 3, we read how the glory of God in man and woman was marred and stained. In Jewish tradition, rabbis have taught that the glory of God ceased to abide 
with Adam and Eve after they sinned against God. It seems to me that there's a point here that's consistent to some degree with Scripture. What I would say, sin ruined everything that was created good. Sin is the reason why Paul writes in Romans 8, for we know that the whole creation has been what groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Like, I, I, I've never given birth to a child, but I was there. There was a lot of groaning. It's painful. But it's not only creation that groans, but the people of God also groan. Again, from Romans 8, verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So while we see God's glory in creation and in fellow man because of sin, there is a sickness that has infected everything. Even creation groans and now longs for a remedy to the illness. We first read of God's plan of redemption back in Genesis 3. When, so how do we, how, what's the path toward glory for us? When God was doling out consequences to the serpent, he said this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. This is God talking about the woman, and now we have a masculine pronoun. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Satan will have his way with the offspring of Eve at the cross of Jesus Christ. A heel shall be bruised. However, God's plan of redemption and restoration happened at the same cross when Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. The path back toward glory is through the cross of Jesus Christ. We can groan right now knowing it's through Christ in which we can receive what has been broken. We can see restoration. As the story of the Bible moves forward from Genesis, we see the glory of God on display. But in the Old Testament, it's interesting. It's not really through mankind, at least not yet. You might remember from Exodus 34, 33 and 34, when Moses was on Mount Sinai, I think Ten Commandments, right? Moses wanted to see the glory of God. He wanted to see the majesty of God. And I think that's a fair request. You've been up there by yourself for quite a while. You got these Ten Commandments. Like, God, can I, can I see your glory? Please? I see your majesty. Instead, we read God showed Moses his goodness. One could argue that his goodness is a manifestation of God's glory. But still, God had to put Moses into the cleft of a rock. And as he passed by, he had to put his hand over his face. Further, there's a reason why God instructed his people to first build a tabernacle and a temple in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, both served the purpose of God dwelling with his people and displaying his glory. Even how the, the tabernacle and the temple were built were to remind us of God's glory. The beauty of these earthly objects points to the one who is glorious. We don't have time, but... But we know the prophets Ezekiel and Isaiah had a vision of God's glory. Long story short, the glory of God in the Old Testament in man was broken because of sin and rebellion. However, because God is good, 
because God is good, a plan of restoration and redemption was at work. God was paving the way for man to not only glorify God rightly, but to manifest the glory of God. The Old Testament points and leads to the glorious one, Jesus Christ. We read in John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory of God is preeminently seen in the Son, Jesus Christ. So like when I look up at the stars at night, it's not that I'm just looking at the stars and it's beautiful and it's pleasing to the eye, but it reminds me and points me to the one who created the stars and the moon. The word. Jesus. When Paul pens the book of Romans, and in particular chapter 8, he is showing us the path back toward the garden and restoration with God. He is showing us how the glory of God in man will be completely renewed and restored. I found this quote helpful from Graham Cole. The main theme of the Bible, he says, is not human salvation. Now, let's just pause there for a moment. Because that's kind of like, what? We're doing a whole sermon series on salvation. And now you're telling me that this guy's right? That the whole point of the Bible is not about your salvation? Let's read on. But it's not about salvation but the work of God vindicating his purposes and glorifying himself in a sinful and disordered cosmos by establishing his kingdom and exalting his son, by creating a people to worship and serve him, and ultimately by dismantling and reassembling this order of things, so rooting out, so rooting out sin of his world entirely. I think that's right. I think that's right. The Bible is about human salvation to the degree that is all about putting down sin and glorifying God. God is at work to root out sin, restore order, and reestablish his kingdom of glory. And we exist in a time and place where the furniture of the house is being put back into order after someone came in and just messed it all up. Consider these two verses that bookend today's passage from Romans 8. For I consider that the suffering of this present time, as you sit right here, the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The first advent of Jesus Christ broke the power of sin over a Christian's life. Yes and amen. But even though the power of sin over your life has been broken, the consequences of sin are still felt every single day. So even though you might suffer in the present, you need to, we, you, and I, we need to have an eye on what is to come. I mean, it is true in, in one sense that the best is yet to come. There is a future glory for the people of God to experience. One of the primary ways you will experience future glory is to see what God is doing in the, in the present to prepare your heart and mind for the future. Read with me verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he had justified, and those whom he had justified, he also 
glorified. Uh, last Sunday, I preached on the doctrine of sanctification, right? Sanctification is how glory begins in your life. And glory is sanctification consummated. When Jesus returns, sanctification will cease. It will stop. We will no longer need to fight sin. It will be decisively dealt with. Suffering will cease. And glory will shine at its brightest. From these two verses, right? Verse 18, verse 30. We see that the glory of God in the life of Christ is a present reality and a future reality. Let's consider these two ideas separately. The glory of God in the present reality. 2 Corinthians 3.18 confirms what we read in Romans 8. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So do you see from this particular verse what God is doing? In light of what we know about Genesis, in light of what we know about sin, through Christ, from one degree of glory to another, we're being transformed. The moment you were saved, Christian, God the Holy Spirit began to work progressively to change you into the image of your Savior. As this happens, more and more of the glory of God is seen in and through you. So by nature, I'm conservative, and I'm not necessarily talking about politics. But my disposition toward life and faith is to conserve what has been and what currently is. It's like just my disposition in life. Therefore, I never use the terms like progressive or progressively to describe myself unless I am talking about being more like Christ. Then please use that term all day long because that is what I need. That's what you need. The desire for all Christians is to progressively become more like Jesus. In a real sense, glorification is at work in the process of sanctification. Go back with me to Romans 8.30. Look uh, at that theological golden chain. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Predestined, called, justified, and then glorified. Now, have you ever wondered why sanctification is not situated between justified and glorified? I know I've wondered that. I've asked that question many times in my devotions. I know it's conjecture, but I think it is because the progressive glorification of a Christian is a a present reality within sanctification. Like That makes a lot of sense to me. It's also important to remember that on this side of Christ's second coming, Christians are active in their present glorification. Like when you come to worship on Sunday morning, you take steps to be more like Christ. When you suffer well, which is hard. You become more like Christ. When you say no to sin, when you slay your sin, you become more like Christ. You, Christian, exist to glorify God by being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And every single day, there are opportunities to move in that progressive direction, to look like, to become more like Christ. Let's now think through future glory your future glory. I thought about leading out with this story, but it fits here to help us think well about future glory. In his book on glorification, um, Graham Cole writes this. Is the idea of glorification an opioid for the masses? 
Karl Marx would have thought so. He argued that religion leads the believer to focus on the prospect of the world to come and neglect this one. That old saying, you're so heavenly minded, you're you know, earthly good, that whole thing. He famously wrote, quote, Religion is, a, is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of a soulless conditions. It is an opium of the people, a drug for the people. Now, I agree with Mark's assessment of the relationship between the Christian and heaven, right? I see what he's trying to do there. If you remove spirituality, in particular heaven, from Christian doctrine and thought, then guess what? You remove the hope. Hope begins to slip through the fingers like sand. The material, the here and now, is all that we're living for. The only glory worth pursuing is personal glory. Or at least some other type of earthly glory. But Marx is wrong in his final assessment of Christianity in heaven on two points. There will be a day when God and the people of God will be glorified. Here are my thoughts about his assessment. One, the future glorification of Christians should impact how we live in the present. It absolutely should impact. We are to live actively for God in the present because the kingdom of God has come to earth. I mean, read that in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Christians must reject the idea that everything around us is going to burn, so let's just put up our feet on the recliner, watch some college basketball this afternoon. It's all going to burn anyways. Let's just wait for heaven. I just don't think that's biblical, which is one response I would have to Karl Marx. There's a future glory that awaits us. And in light of that, we are active in the present. Number two, Religion, as he defines it, is not an opium, but allows people to live freely. The Christian faith places a spotlight on freedom in Christ, which excites and points toward future glorification. Like, I look forward to the day that I get to be with Jesus. Like, do you look forward to that day of future glory? The one who saved you at the cross, the one who rose from the dead, do you look forward to seeing him face to face? After reading Romans 8.30 for the hundredth plus time, I paused and wondered why the word glorified is in the past tense, right? If I'm talking about future glory, you would expect to see the future tense. You will be glorified. Or, but specifically in the Greek, it's in the past tense. And I was wondering what's going on here. I think glorified is in the past tense because God has secured the glorification of his people. The check has been signed. It has been cashed. It's a done deal. We read these words of Christ in the Gospel of John. This is Christ talking. The glory that you have given me, talking to the Father, I have given them that they may be one even as we are one. God shares his glory with his people, and there will be a day when God's people will realize the security they have in Christ. What I mean by realize is that Christians can know in the present that a complete glorification awaits them. 
if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, God has secured your future glorification. To those whom he's justified, declared not guilty, you have so much to look forward to. One aspect of future glorification is that you will have a new body. That's interesting to me. That's Philippians 3.21. Now that is a day like I really look forward to. I imagine anyone who's getting older feels the aches and pains of a body that is breaking down. Uh, I, I work out at the YMCA occasionally, and uh, I was just reflecting on like all these teenagers and all these 20 and 30-year-olds doing things that I'm kind of like, You've been doing that for an hour. I've been on the Stairmaster for five minutes, and I'm just sucking air. I just can't do it anymore, right? I'm just trying to get to a meager 20 minutes on the Stairmaster, and these guys are just running around, lifting weights. Like, they're not even breathing. Now, I'm not dismissing the notion that i got to take care of my body, especially as, my age, as, my, as, my, as I get older, right? I mean, that's important. But it is also true to say things begin to break down. And you know what? These aches and pains can be a reminder of what is to come. That new body. We groan inwardly, Romans 8.23, eagerly waiting the complete redemption of our bodies. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. When you die, Christian, your body's you know, buried in the ground, but your soul goes to be with the Lord. But when Jesus returns, we're talking about his, the second advent of our Savior, the soul will receive its new glorious body. It'll be perfect with no aches and pains, no cancer. No need to go to the doctor for that prognosis. You will still be you, but you will be a new you, a changed you. So I hope you see the, the, the great story arc of glory in the Bible. The glory of God is seen in his creation, in particular through the creation of Adam and Eve. No animal, right? No other object has been made into God's image and likeness. Although the glory of God can be seen in other aspects of God's creation, there's something special about being made in God's image and likeness. But sin tainted the glory of God. God's glory is still evident in his creation, but the entrance of sin into the world changed the terms of the agreement. Adam, and Adam broke the covenant of works, but God would provide another covenant for man. Between Genesis 3 and the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God continued to show his glory, but it was all leading toward the Son. It would be in and through the second Adam, Jesus Christ, in which God provided a way back for man to share God's glory. And now it is between the first and the second coming of Christ, which God is calling Christians to reflect and refract God's glory day in, day out. That's what you're doing every single day by God's grace, reflecting God's glory as his image bearer, as you cling to the cross of Jesus Christ. Romans 8 shows us that the glory of God is on display through suffering. The glory of God is on display by walking in holiness, 
The glory of God is on display in your life every single moment of every single day. And finally, we look forward to the complete restoration of glory, a final glorification of the body and of the entire world. When you see how this last link is connected to all the other links of the chain, Christians are the happiest and most joyful people on earth. This should be, right? We have every reason to be grateful to God for giving us what we do not deserve, the grace of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Christians are the most humble people because the law and the sin condemn you in your tracks. However, the righteous and merciful judge of the universe has declared you not guilty because Jesus took on the wrath of God in your place. And Christians should be the most hopeful people because of a future glorification that will take place. Listen, all the prior links of the chain have been fulfilled in your life. God called you, regenerated your cold, dead heart. You have faith and repentance. You've been justified, adopted, and sanctified currently. If God has done all that for you, then there is no reason to question what he will do. Right. I'm going to let Romans 8 have the final word of this sermon. We read in verses 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.